Hello and uh, welcome to the live stream. My name is Andy Ellis. Um, this is my channel. I'm considering a run for governor in 2026. And one of the things that I want to do is bring on really interesting people who have perspectives that don't often get heard in a two-party system. Uh, and so tonight uh, is a follow-up of a presentation that happened last week um, as a Baltimore racial justice action event called The Impossibility of Justice in a Two-Party System. Myself and Namdi Wamumba put that uh, talk on a week ago, and we can share the link with folks. Uh, but tonight we're revisiting it and getting deeper into the conversation uh, and just talking about what we think, uh, why we think justice is impossible in a two party system, and what an alternative to that looks like. Yeah. Um, how are you doing tonight, Namdi? I am doing well, thank you. Uh, I think this is a beautiful, excellent time to be talking about this. Uh, we're at the in the beginning part of the national election drive season, uh, and people are starting to now kind of think about electoral uh, issues. But the truth is, is that as we know, politics happens every day, uh, whether that's in Washington, whether that's in City Hall, or whether it's in state capital. Uh, politics are happening every day, so you know we look forward to political education and civic education because the more people know. Uh, the better they make choices and decisions. Excellent. Couldn't have put it better, and I'm excited to have this conversation about it. Um, for folks who may not have tuned in last week, do you want to go ahead and just introduce yourself and your organization? Namdi, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, yeah. Do you want to just introduce yourself? And oh, sorry, you sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So my name is Namdi Lamumba. I am the uh, state organizer for the Ojima People's Progress Party. We are attempting to create the first Black workers-led electoral party uh, for economic and social justice in the state of Maryland. Uh, we would like to marry the combination of community activism and class-oriented struggles with the electoral process so that we can take all that hard work we've been doing and take it right into the electoral arena for more and more people to make decisions. So. That's who I am. And the Ujima People's Progress Party is something you can find out there either on Facebook or just Google us. Excellent. Thank you very much. And we'll definitely put links in when we send it out. Um, so let's start with a pretty weighty uh, pretty weighty question and conversation that we discussed uh, last week in the Baltimore Racial Justice Action Event. How do you define democracy uh, broadly and specifically? So I think this is an important question, right? Because um, I think there's a both a mysticism to the concept of democracy and also this uh, reverence for the question of democracy. Uh, for us, I think the first thing that's important to say is that democracy is a process that is not absent of a class character. Uh, it is literally possible to have democracy in the system of apartheid. There was in this country, the system of democracy, while there was slavery and no access to democracy for women of any uh, ethnicity. Uh, so democracy is is never uh, devoid of class uh, 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 relationship, but it is the process in which people have a voice to make decisions, whether that's directly about what happens in your neighborhood or what happens nationally. Right. I think it's a process and not just something that's given. We have to work for it and, and we have to strategize for it. Yeah, I think that I think that's a 
excellent point that it can exist, that it itself does not bring about justice. It can exist in a system of injustice uh, and that it exists beyond just who we vote for and how they govern. Um, this was a point that you were making a lot last week, is that democracy, we have to think about democracy, not just as the practice of elections, but we have to think about it as a, as a broader practice of community. Can you talk a little bit about that concept and, and what that means to you? Yeah, certainly. And again, I think this is how, to be honest, this is how regular people really get to be engaged. And this is how regular people get to realize that together they can have real influence, right? The, the, the system that we have now, generally speaking, relegates people to thinking of the electoral uh, arena as the only legitimate form of democracy. So they don't think about activism. They don't think about um, pressing your, 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 your local representative. Uh, they don't think about uh, initiatives that you can put on the ballot yourself, right? These are not things that are normally thought of as democracy. Uh, but even the, the choices, again, that we make in our neighborhoods, uh, what quality of education, uh, the safety in our community, uh, how do we take care of our young people and our elders, right? These are decisions that are democratic, right, that at this stage does not, the, the, the state of the United States, right, the state of Maryland, these are things that they don't encourage people to think about. They want to leave all those decisions in their hands. And if they don't, people haven't been, haven't been prepared to make those choices for themselves. And and I think I think one of the important parts about this is that when people are not able to participate in that outside of the times around elections, they're disadvantaged when they're going up against people who do have that civic society leading yeah. into elections. So we find folks that maybe they have a right to vote, even that's being questioned right now, but even maybe they have a right to vote. But if there's not an infrastructure for democracy in which they can participate, um, in a winner-take-all system, they're going to find themselves at odds with people who are participating and do have structure built for them all the time. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I think that, uh, you know, I think that, uh, well, let, let's get into the, the two-party system part of this. Ooh. How does the two-party system stifle democracy? I know this is something you have some thoughts on. So, I mean, there. first of all, the two-party system itself is not a... Uh, it is a minority way in the world in which democracy is played out, right? In many, many places in the world, there are, there are multi-party systems. Uh, in some places, there are one-party systems, so it's not, but even those are in the minority as well. I think what's important to understand in the U.S. context is that there are other parties that are allowed to legally exist, but they have no real access to be heard. Um, the kind of resources that that's necessary to be competitive at at national levels are almost unthought, you know, you can't even imagine what that is. Uh, but the two party system in America really forces people down a path of the lesser of two evils, right? Uh, we would often say that the, the Democratic and Republican Party are two sides of the same political worldview, right? Uh, uh, you know, very uh, capitalistic and imperialistic, uh, very much or, or, or oriented around what uh, white men think about what the world should look like, um, you know, very little concern about the uh, the world outside of profit making. So, you know, I mean, do they have different policies? Absolutely. Do they have different ideas about how to make those things happen? Absolutely. But what if you don't want capitalism? What if you don't want war? 
Uh, what if you don't want a system based upon patriarchy or, or white supremacy? Then you don't have real, real avenues for de democratic uh, expression in the two-party systems. Let's talk more about that part about expression in the two-party system. Uh, and we talked about this some last week, but what are the ways in which the two-party system seeks to define what is legitimate and illegitimate political discourse and like what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, we've talked about this, obviously, there's, there, there are the the not so subtle ways in which it, it, it discourages um, that kind of talk. And then there are ways in which structurally it doesn't make it possible, right? So the two-party system, for instance, uh, the whole concept of, of, of uh, winner takes all, right? First to the finish. Uh, first, it, it essentially tells you that whoever gets more than 50%, 51%, let's say that, right, has therefore won, and especially in, 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 in elections where only one person can, can win that. Uh, is it really a democratic question when 49% of the population has no input? What about all the other people? What if you don't get an actual majority, you only get a polarity, right? Then there are whole segments of, of society where their ideas, their wishes just get delegitimized because of a legal election. But there are also things that they do that you can understand, obviously, Andy. Uh, third parties aren't always allowed to have access to platforms, right? They won't allow us to debate. Uh, the fact that they create these whole different structures for third parties to get access when they don't have to have any of those access right questions to the ballot. Um, you know, this structurally, they make it very difficult for you to have access. And, and then again, uh, when you talk about things that are outside of, of, of voting, uh, they tend to make it something that's unusual when people are, are, are organizing themselves or galvanizing around questions, um, you know. Half the time, they won't even cover real issues, right? We've had all around this country, all around this, uh, around the world, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people demonstrating around the question of, of, of justice for the Palestinian people. And it's barely a footnote in most local and national news. So uh, they're, again, subtle, the ways in which they can shut down democracy, because you have to have discussions for people to have alternative ideas. Yeah, it, totally. And, and I think I think that the the question of Israel, Palestine, Gaza uh, occupation, apartheid that we can see happening in front of us is a really good example of this, because it, it's, you know, you would be hard pressed following the news of the Maryland General Assembly or the Maryland congressional delegation to think that there were any Marylanders who thought that, uh, you know, we need to end USAID to Israel, that there needs to be a ceasefire, that we need to strive for real democracy. And uh, I think that the example of what happened with CASA in the last couple of weeks is a really good example of that. And it seems like there's bipartisan support for there's bipartisan support uh, for supporting Israel. Uh, and for condemning anybody who would challenge U.S. policy on this as supporting terrorists and being anti-Semitic. And um, so I don't know. I mean, I, do you want to talk a little bit more about Israel and Palestine? Or? Yeah, I mean, again, let's even in the democratic, just in the most democratic concept, the fact is in a country like America, which presents itself as one of the most free, most democratic in the world, it literally shuts down any 
um, any debate, right, uh, on around, around this question, as if, if you have a different opinion from what the ruling class of America wants us to believe, that somehow you're a demagogue or somehow you have unity uh, with terrorists. Uh, and, you know, again, people, when you're forced down a path to make choices and you don't even know that the choice is given to you, don't even, first of all, they're not the only choices, but then they're not even choices that serve your interests. You know, you will even get one of two things. People will continue down those lines and get, get more and more entrenched, right? So that they don't even know how to process uh, facts or they become completely discouraged and opt out because they say these choices just don't feel right for me. I know it's bulls, you know, bullshit and I'm out. You know what I mean? And I think what we see is a continuing um, trend when people are opting out of the two party system and all the uh, connections, right? The media, uh, uh, the local politicians, the state politicians, uh, all of those things are all connected and they have trying to project this one uh, um, this one um, story about what people's opinion should be about uh, Israel and, and its attack on the Palestinian people. Yeah. And, you know, like we my campaign is going to be putting out a statement uh, about Maryland's anti-boycott, divest and sanction position this week. And uh, I think folks don't I think many folks don't know that like boycott, divest and sanctions was a nonviolent global movement in order to try to apply the same standards that, that helped to bring democracy in South Africa to Israel. And it got shut down so ferociously um, by by both parties. Now, I will say when there, there were bills that were trying to get passed in 2017 about this in Maryland, both of those bills failed. But Governor Hogan went ahead and signed a uh, signed an executive order that prevents anybody who believes in boycott, divesting or sanctioning against Israel from doing any business with the state. And Wes Moore, who's our current governor, has extended it. It often feels like the things that there are bipartisan support for in Maryland are tough on crime policies and support for Israel. Yeah. Uh, it's like those two things you know, there is no alternative that seems viable or seems possible to discuss. And we saw, you know, uh, when Rashida Tlaib stepped out of line for the Democratic Party, they censured her. And when Casa dared to say that both Hamas and Israel need to stop killing civilians and that we need uh, to stand on justice, peace and democracy, um, state senators are threatening their funding. And so I think we need we, we need alternative voices in this because I'm pretty sure that anybody listening to this already understands that this is an unjust situation, um, but are looking for ways to get out of it. Uh, so what, one of the questions I want to pivot to here is how are parties and how are political parties and specifically small political parties outside of the two party system part of building the, um, the power in order to change this reality? Yeah, so I, it, it's really important to ask that because oftentimes people will say, well, how, why don't we just get rid of all political parties and let people run as independents? Uh, and, and, and maybe that might work if you're running for block captain or for maybe city council. But the truth is, is that at the, at the state level and definitely at the federal level, even if you had independence, it would then allow independence with wealth, with connections, right, to be able to use those things against really hardworking, uh, really well thought out uh, campaigns from people who just don't have those resources, right? Um, in, in, the, in, in modern society, political parties have evolved 
into a way of representing your class interests, your national interests, right? Uh, this allows people to be organized. Uh, it gives the average person a infrastructure, right, institution to be able to multiply their strength, to be able to learn from each other, uh, to support people, right? It, it, is a, it is a real way for people who want to make change to be organized, right? And obviously in a two-party system, you want to do as much as possible to keep that kind of organization to as low as possible, right? And so small parties being able to, to first of all, exist is important. It really gives people more venues, more, more avenues to democracy, right? If you don't want to choose the, the lesser of two evils and you have a whole nother agenda, right, then you can find yourself in that, in that political party, you know, and being empowered to move forward. I also think the whole other question of what does democracy look like if, if more political parties are able to be elected? And I'm sure we'll get to that later, but it means more real democracy and not just these two, you know, two opinions that people are supposed to be, be, be left with. Uh, so I think that's why political parties are so important. Yeah. And, and I think when we talk about political parties, the only real reference that most people have for political parties is the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And so I think they think when we're saying we need more parties, that we're saying we need more parties like the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And I don't think that uh, I'm certainly not saying that. And I don't think that's the position that you're taking either. What does the party look like? Uh, what does the kind of party look like that we would need in order to stand in opposition to those two, but still uh, affect outcomes? And one of the things that I think for a long time, I've thought about third parties, political role as providing choice. Uh, and I think choice is important, but I think that if we want to really change the the conditions that people are living in, we also need to have parties that use that providing of choice in order to change outcomes. Uh, and so what does the kind of party look like that you think could be organized in Baltimore City that could change outcomes? So I, one thing, I just I take one step back. So I think one thing that in the, in the modern reality, right, because there definitely needs to be change to how the, the, the political system works. In the modern reality, Parties that are small parties, quote unquote, third parties, need to have a real understanding of how, a realistic understanding of how elections work and how that's related to power. And I think far too many people, because we're so um, miseducated to think that elections represent democracy, that if you don't win, then somehow there is no democracy, right? There's no access to democracy. One of the things I think is gonna be important for, for small parties to do is to give people a sense of how do you win power and not just elections, right? Because organizing people, even if your candidate loses, but you're an organized group, right, in a in an area, you can continue to pressure and put put you know put real action on elected officials or appointed officials to do what it is that you wanted to get done, right? You're able to initiate institutions that represent the ideas of that political party in ways which you couldn't if you were just scattered, right? So I think that's part of it. And that means political parties aren't just places where people come to vote. Political parties are social entities for people. They're educational entities for people, right? We The small party has to be really engaged in local activities, right? Building networks uh, and encouraging that kind of uh, relationship. Uh, and that's what makes them more valuable. 
I think over time, and I'm not even talking about 20 years down the line, I'm talking about over time, uh, four years, six years, now you start to see a network of people who say, well, I know Joe and Joe is in that party and Joe does a great job, right? And that person can speak about Joe in that party in a real direct way because they've got real relationships to food, shelter, clothing, uh, uh, counseling, whatever it is that that person may be involved with. I think that's how small parties grow themselves in a way in which the Democrat and Republican Party don't even care. Yeah, I think I think that's a great way to put it. And there's a there's a set of authors that I really appreciate, Tabitha Abu El Haj and Diddy Cow, who write about associational party building. And what they are suggesting is that we need to go back to a time in which small parties were invested in their community, in which they were based on associations with people uh, in their community, and they were using civic organizations and people in order to put pressure on government uh, government and elections. Now, they recognize that there's bad history with that too, and they recognize that they're, uh, but, they, but they think there's good history with that sort of early 20th century, 19th century type of party that wasn't a nationalized corporate brand that was selling voting and donating, uh, but was actually selling collectivizing of political power. I think the question that I have for that, and, and I'd like to hear you your take on some of this. I got that uh, Omar Ali book that you recommended to me. And so I'd like to hear your talk a little bit about the history and importance of black political parties uh, as part of the third party movement. Sure. So I, I think it's always interesting for, to remind people that it, um, one of the most successful third parties right, of all time in the United States was the Republican Party. Uh, there was a time when the Republican Party was not a national party. And the whole question of of, of slavery, uh, and not for any moral reason, but for economic reason, there was really a co a co a co a coalition co uh, of interest about wanting slavery to be ended, and especially for uh, uh, black voters, they saw a lot of their interests being represented in the Republican Party, and our ability to vote at that time helped with the Republican Party having the first uh, presidential uh, candidate uh, Abraham Lincoln winning. But after that, we started almost immediately start to see rollbacks in attacks on the democratic participation uh, of black people, especially in the South, uh, with Jim Crow laws, voting, uh, you know, denying of access and making it grandfather laws. There were just a whole series of attacks that would allow uh, white Democrats and eventually white Republicans to be able to seize power back in the South. But part of that process was that the desire to be able to have democracy manifest itself in, in the creation of the very first Black Panther Party in Lowndes County, uh, Alabama, right? Which built a party to run candidates against the mainstream Democratic Party. Uh, we had uh, a tremendous hero by the name of, of Fannie, uh, Fannie Lou Hayman uh, in Mississippi, who built the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party, uh, which actually tried to unseat the Democratic, the standard Democratic Party, right? Which, listen, that is not uh, like, overthrowing the the, the 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 you know the, the state but it was revolutionary in the sense that they knew that this democratic party did not represent the interests of black people and even uh, of white people who wanted to see real justice in that area right and she tried with a, a, a very strong movement to unseat people 
uh, and be able to have their their Democratic uh, Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party be the representative to the to the National Convention of the Democratic Party. So there's a history. There's the Freedom Now Party I mean, in, 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 in California. Uh, there was one in Detroit. So there are real histories of Black people trying to engage first inside of the mainstream to du duality, du dual uh, parties, and then saying, you know what, if you won't let us in, we'll have to build our own institutions that reflect our ideas. Um, of course, we also had parties like the Black Panther Party for self-defense, which eventually ended up running in elections in the early 70s. Uh, and then in the 1980s, there was a real large attempt that was almost closely there to create the National Black Independent Party that would have been a national party. Uh, and those questions from that era have not always been resolved, but in a very similar way, Ujima is trying to finish that process. How do black working class people, independent of democratic money, uh, corporate money, create their own independent party so that people who are anti-capitalist, who are anti-racist, anti-imperialist, right, can find themselves in, in a political party fighting for social justice. That's a history, right? And it's not because we, that's the first thing we came up with. It's really a reaction to the fact that if you won't give us justice, we have to build the vehicles, right? The institutions that will allow us to fight for justice. Yeah, and it, I, I want to get to Linda Thompson's questions in a second. So we'll get to those. They're in the, you can see them in the comments there. Um, but I, I think you make a good point about how uh, black political formations try to work within the two-party system and often find themselves breaking up. But one of the things that I most appreciated about what Omar Ali is arguing is that um, black political formations have also tried to work with um, white and diverse socialist parties, with white and diverse workers parties, and have often found that to be a problem as well, uh, which has led to the which has led to forming black based political formations. And so I think that uh, I think. As you and I try to work together on this, um, I think it is. I think we've seen some of that at times. We've seen folks in both of our parties who have questions about uh, about you know how folks are are carrying themselves and things like that. And one of the things that I think is most important about a multi-party system is that it allows it doesn't force there to be a third party. It doesn't force there to be one party in which the left can consolidate and push all the rest of its problems aside. Instead, it allows there to be a good coexistence, a good coalition between a party like Ujima and a party like the Green Party without forcing us to be the same party. And so that's that's one of the things that I'd love to explore in a bit as we talk a little bit about how multi-party systems work and how a multi-party democracy, how, how trying to build a party in which multiple parties can flourish is a better way to do it than trying to build a third party in a two-party system. Yeah. Um, so, but let's, uh, I want to take a, a step back and we are doing this as a live stream and we're trying to look for uh, for feedback from folks. So let's look at these two questions that Linda has, Linda Thompson has on Facebook. And um, let me say the first one here is, uh, I will show it. So please, she asks that we explain proportional representation. Uh, and she says for the last 60 years, the majority of the left has fought issue after issue without changing the election laws to make a third party possible. Party suppression has not been an issue. Are you for a coalition campaign for democratic elections? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, uh, okay, so let's first talk about proportional representation, right? I think that is a um, a good option to be able to use in a capitalist democracy, right? Where 
instead of being forced down a path to accept two truths that are lies, right? That to be able to have other uh, uh, other voices be able to say, if someone runs a if, a, if a party runs candidates and those candidates gets 20%, 25% of the vote, uh, to be able to say, you know what, that's a, that represents, even if it's 10%, but let's be honest, if you have a percentage of the vote where people are expressing themselves through electoral through the electoral process, then they should be able to have some representation at whatever level that election was for so that their ideas don't just get uh, um, smoothed over, right? I think that's important. I think it's a very dangerous idea to the two-party system because then essentially they have to give they have to be willing to give up uh, the influence, right? Like the lie that if 51% of the voters pick one one person, that that one person then represents everybody's interest. We know that's not true, right? And, and it makes it easy for places like Maryland to completely dominate the political ideas for the Democratic Party, when in fact, there, there are lots of people to the left of the Democratic Party and there are people to the right of the Republican Party in this state. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think the second part of this about are you for coalition campaign for democratic elections is exactly the reason that I think we're supporting uh, proportional representation, because it creates a policy. It creates a politics that is more about sharing and cooperation than it is about 51 percent of the votes getting 100 percent of the power. Uh, and I think if you look at the at the history uh, if you look at the history of proportional representation, it's not a new idea in the United States. At the turn of the 20th century, there were a lot of cities uh, that, that had proportional systems and had party-based proportional systems. And uh, so you saw cities starting to adopt these charters in the early part of the, you know, in the like early 1900s, where they were using exactly this type of electoral system, where a certain number of people, uh, where if you got a certain number of votes, you got a certain number of seats. And, and what started to happen with that movement is it was electing socialists, it was electing workers, it was electing immigrants, it was electing women, and in some cases it was electing black people uh, uh, that wouldn't have otherwise got elected. And the two-party system realized that we couldn't have this. And so the, the business and economic interests in the two-party system stripped the parties out of that and led us to a place where we sort of had these nonpartisan um, proportional representation systems. And then the politics of those organizations started to drift back to the center, toward the capitalist and toward the moneyed interests. So I think that we can talk more about proportional representation in a second. Go ahead. But also, just to, to, to I, I do want to point out to Linda, and I think Linda knows this, the concept of party suppression is is a part of this discussion, but in a different way. It's not like there's an all all out rule that says no other parties can exist. But what you have is the party suppression is either you don't have an uh, you don't you're not allowed to have access right to compete with ideas of the Democrat and Republican Party. Or you create these 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 um, these um, bars, right? That make it very difficult for th for third parties to exist. Or you make it like in Maryland, there is no ability to have uh, um, to have uh, countywide, right? Municipal uh, uh, parties, right? I mean, so what happens is is that e even though we do need proportional representation, the way in which you make it almost non-existent is you make it difficult for contending ideas to be able to represent proportional ideas as well. 
So yeah. I, I just think that's, you know, and also they take you off the ballot as soon as they can. So, I mean, you, you know. Yeah, I mean, to me, the place for party suppression comes in. I think you put it well. I think we basically have a we have a multi-party system in which only two parties can be healthy. Uh, and and the, the part where the thumb gets put on the scale is ensuring that those two parties are the only ones healthy. I mean, the Maryland Constitution is such that if I were to win the governor's race um, and be the next governor of Maryland, the Green Party would still not be represented as one of the two parties uh, in the state of Maryland, the two pr principal parties. So the, the Constitution says the prince, the the majority party shall be the governor's party, unless it is not the Democrats or the Republicans, basically, right? And so it is like, um, you know, I, all of that to say, we do allow multiple parties to exist. Multiple parties, the Green Party exists. Ujima is trying to get on the ballot. These things exist, but the laws aren't there to prevent them from existing as much as they are to present prevent them from being healthy from succeeding and being able to represent the people who share those views. So, all right, let's take Linda's other question. We can't have a conversation about third party presidential or about third parties without answering this question. So um, do you want to comment on the presidential race and the major and alternative candidates? Uh, well, so I, I think, I don't, you, you know, I think we've talked about this. I, I'm, I'm least interested and presidential presidential races, uh, uh, to be honest, uh, I think first of all at that at that level we're really talking about uh, at the highest level picking between two racist capitalists who both you know have nuanced differences in how they will continue uh, the domination of capital over working people. Right. That's I mean, and I know people well. That's really reductionist. Well, that's what you're asking people to vote for. Right. You can reduce it as many ways as you want. That's the choices. Alternative candidates, yes, I think it's important to have alternatives. But the question for me is, what do those alternatives really mean for, for, for working people? What does it really mean for voters who want to have another choice? I don't think that answer has really worked out as well. You know what I mean? Um, it doesn't allow you to build your, 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 your national capacity. Um, you're not guaranteed to have any access to be heard on the national stage when you run. So, I, you know what I mean? I, I don't want to dis... I don't want to just outright poo-poo it but i just i think it's i think it's difficult right for people who are really struggling locally to have democratic voice to take it that seriously because until we can figure out how to have healthy parties the national stuff is just a little uh, uh, quite a reach right i think there are ways it can happen i just think we have to recalculate and express that to people as well yeah, totally. And I mean, we, we're we both in Maryland, and there's almost zero chance that Maryland's electoral votes are going to be have anything to do with the outcome of the race. Uh, and, it, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like, if, if 48 other states vote Republican, we might vote Republican too. Otherwise, we're going to vote Democrat by double digits. And, and people can say, well, the votes haven't been counted yet, but we can, we can predict that pretty well. Um, uh, we can predict that pretty well. So, I mean, I think that's one part of it is that like, look, like we're in Maryland uh, and the Electoral College has already made the presidential race relatively irrelevant for us. The other thing I would say about this is that one of the ways that the two-party system has exerted power is by nationalizing every race 
and by making the only race that matters in any election cycle the the top ticket uh, or the top of the national the national race. So this means that the two parties are constantly building around the presidential race and the congressional race and re reducing all politics to be about that. And so like, yes, I have my opinions. I'll vote for, I'll probably vote. I will not vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any of those folks. I'll vote for Jill Stein or Cornell West or one of those other, those other people. Um, and I will try to do so in a way that I think helps to push the, the question for forward. But I reject the notion uh, that we should talk about politics only through the lens of the national um, top of the ticket race between those two people. And I think I think when we're talking about a multi-party system and a proportional representation system, well, let me say, when we start to have this conversation, it often transitions into electoral reforms. And one of the questions that came up the other night uh, was the question of whether ranked choice voting is good for black people or not. Uh, and so um, I think I answered that question the other night uh, with sort of a, it's okay, like it's a little better than the status quo. I think I answered that question without thinking about it from the perspective of black people. And I think that I answered it from the question of sort of like, you know, is it marginally better for the marginal voter? And it might be. Um, but I'm going to turn the question to you and see what you think about ranked choice voting uh, so broadly and specifically. I, 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 to me, it, it feels like a a a a um, a lightweight reform, right? That promises democracy, but really allows people to be more deeply entrenched in possibly more bad choices. Um, so I, I'm not a big fan of rank, uh, rank choice. I'm not saying that it's, is it marginally better? Sure. But the truth is, again, if you have no access, if you cannot hear of ideas, um, if, if you can't, um, have real candidates from parties on the ballot, then, then the ranked choice is just more of the same, but now you get a second opinion about a bad choice. Right? So I, I, I feel like it, it is something Unlike proportional voting, I think ranked choice is something that the two-party system can gain, right? So yes, it's a reform, but the two-party system can then still use that to not change the scope of power in the way people participate in a meaningful way. Yeah. And, you know, so Jack Santucci, who wrote a, a really good history of electoral reform in the United States, classifies three types of reforms. He says that there's insulating reforms polarizing reforms and realigning reforms. And an insulating reform is one that protects the current power base. Uh, and he thinks that in most cases, ranked choice voting falls into that group. Like it stops challenges from outside uh, and really sort of gets you to a majority by math, but it is not, it does not realign the governing coalition. It, it might, it might help center it might help like centrists and good government parties so like i could see a place where um a republican and a democrat are squaring off against each other and somebody like forward or no labels benefits from ranked choice voting because everybody's tired of the fighting on both sides i don't really think that's actually going to happen that way but i could see it helping with a non-ideological reform-based party sure, sure i don't see it as a tool that can ever help bring about justice or bring about a critique of capitalism or bring about a critique of imperialism. Yeah. Um, 
how do you think proportional representation can help to bring about, uh, can help to bring more opportunity for justice uh, and, and more opportunity for a multi-party system? Yeah, so again, let, let's just use the, the, the fact that having uh, representation, right, in a legislative body where if you have a group of small parties that make up a significant sector, they can, through their participation, really push real discussions. I don't know if they can make real substantive changes, but for instance, you're not going to have a, a easy votes that just move resources away from poor and working class people and put them right back in the pocket of corporations easily, right? Um, I, I don't even personally, I don't even like the idea of like, I, I'm a person who's an anti-capitalist. I don't want to see money at all moved from the needs of working and poor people to line the pockets of any capitalist uh, industry or individual, right? They don't need any more help from us. Get them off of welfare, if you will, right? So I'm not willing to say that that proportional voting would allow people to extract a little bit more, but I think it would definitely allow more more access to to your to your local leadership, more expression of those ideas on the floor for people to hear. I also think again tying it to like what people are doing on the ground, because if we keep separating the 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 the, um, the formal electoral, you know, the 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 formal um, people in office from all the day's work that people do around housing and feeding people and education. I mean, there are people working very hard, not just on policy, but I'm talking about how do I solve this problem because the state won't do it. Those people should be really represented and their voices should be heard because now they have representatives who won't just let their ideas go. You know, I mean, they, they'll, they should be fighting so those people have access to, to the whole uh, legislative body. Yep. And I think I think that like I think right now those folks that are doing that that work uh, day in and day out, the real practice of democracy, as it were, uh, are are shut out of of representation within the two party system because it won't recognize the necessity to do those works. And that doesn't mean that they can't. Um, it doesn't mean that people can't work the political system, uh, but when when there's only two choices, the leverage that people have in trying to work that system goes away. And what I like about a multi-party and proportional system is it gives more people access to somebody in the governing coalition that can use the mechanisms of power in order to create leverage. And I mean, it's like, it's not gonna be easy. It's not like if we had proportional representation in a multi-party democracy, there would be justice, peace, and and freedom for everybody. We would still have to fight for it. But for me, it's an electoral system that makes the fight easier uh, because you don't have to get 51% of the votes to get 100% of the power. If you can get a group of people who stand behind a smaller uh, associative party, you can get them elected and you can use the mechanisms once you're elected in order to make change. You know, I think we, I think we have to look at the real world of where uh, multi-party systems are in place and not assume it's some fantasy. Uh, but I think what it does do is create more access for those who are participating in the real work of democracy and fighting for justice to have access to power. Uh, you know, One thing ahead. I will also point out that I, I, I look forward to the opportunity, especially in when you're talking about representative 
a, a proportional kind of uh, situation. So many times the demands and actions by activists, right, who are fighting for a, a response from the state are delegitimized. Either they don't get covered or they, you know, the, the, or the, elect, the elected officials just kind of like uh, uh, just act like these people are coming from out of space. To have someone who is in city council, state legislation, who now not only unites with those ideas, but is a part of forming those ideas, right? And activists from that party, they help give those ideas real weight and legitimacy because it's gonna get harder to ignore a group of elected officials who are out with the march, right? They're not just people who join in at the last, they're help planning it, they're supporting it. They're legitimizing these demands by their participation. That is also a part of what that means, right? And it's going to make it harder for a two-party uh, uh, system to act like there aren't other ideas and other voices that exist. Yeah, and I think I think that that part of it is really important because it is like, what are we trying to do here? I think we are trying to make it easier for those who uh, want to pursue justice to be able to have a means of doing so. And I think when we think about what electoral reform should look like, it should be what is the system that best allows the practice of democracy to pursue justice. That's that's how I see it. Is which of these systems makes it the most viable for people who are trying to realign the governing coalition in order to get different outcomes to influence those outcomes. You know, um, so let's talk about. Do we want to talk about what the ballot looks like, or is this like a? Is this a? We send out some. We send out some links to this later. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't want to really go down that path too much. Okay, um, I will be happy on my pages to share some stuff about what the ballots look like um, contemporarily or in, in contemporary times and what they looked like um, when folks were making this campaign in the in the early twentieth century. It, it's super interesting. One of the things that I found the most interesting is that like political campaigns in favor of proportional representation had all sorts of like charts and tables in them uh, in the early 1900s. And they were persuasive because people understand intuitively that if I have 20% of the votes, I should get 20% of the power. Uh, and I think we think that it's this really complicated thing. And I think we only think it's complicated because the effects of capitalism and imperialism that have convinced us that 51% of the votes gets you 100% of the power. But that's not actually how most people think about things. And I think the case for different electoral systems, many people do think about sharing power opportunity and things like that. And I think many of the people who are dropping out of the two-party system especially believe in those types of things. So uh, it, it was it was interesting to me to see this historical account of how charts and graphs were used to sell um, proportional representation to working people 100 years ago. So I'll share some of that stuff on the page and we can talk about it. But let's, let's ask a more broad and abstract but still practical question. What does democracy look like in Maryland and Baltimore in a world in which you and I win this, in which there are more healthier parties and there's proportional representation and um, what types of changes can we make? What what outcomes are different? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, obviously you can run, run away with it. I, I think, listen, we still live in a capitalist country. So I think that we can't like sell people pie in the sky, right? I think what we're really telling people is, is that this is a part of the democratic struggle 
for justice, right? And that that the elect the elected officials that we get in are a, a, a part of that work, and their job is going to be really in, you know helpful to support the real work that's being done, as we talked about, by the everyday activists, the people who are trying to come up with real policy, uh, the people who are trying to do real education around these ideas. I think, like, if you think about football, the having a proportional uh, uh, representation, having uh, people who represent these opposing ideas in office, they're going to be the blockers, right? We're going to be running all these blocking maneuvers so that avenues that have been so long denied and cut off to, to real real debates, real working class people now are going to be forced open, right? And that means even elected officials who do this have to get better at their blocking schemes, right? Like they have to actually understand how do we do these things so that we give space and, and make avenues open? How do we get resources to these folks? But I also think that then that helps people who have thought of themselves as clients of people in power, because I also think that's the other part of it. We want to empower working class people, right, to see themselves as makers of history and not just that uh, I have to go to the like the right person has to get elected and then maybe. Right. I mean, we're at a point now where people literally vote to minimize harm. Not because they vote for hopefully someone who would adopt their ideas, but hopefully that the guy that loses or gal that loses will not be as, you know, can't get in because their ideas are even worse, right? That is not representation. That is not empowering people. What we want to see is a base of people now who feel like they have someone who understands their, their issues, who will empower them, and they themselves start organizing, right? Outside of what's happening in, in City Hall, outside of what happens at the state capitol, they are organizing because they know that they have a voice, they have an avenue, and they can get in front of the people and make these ideas widely known to build a movement, not just wait for the government to make decisions. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, one thing I think when we think about the title here, Impossibility of Justice in a Two-Party System, is I almost think that the most ardent defenders of a two-party system would agree that justice is impossible and it's not even what they're seeking. I think they would think that what they're seeking is harm reduction in order to stop the other side from winning. And what we need to get to is a place where people can believe that some some redistribution of power, wealth, uh, an opportunity is possible and that we can change the outcomes and change the arrangements of power that we have. I think people drop out of the system when they think it can't do those things or when they know it doesn't do those things. And then I think we have a smaller and smaller number of people making the decision about who gets elected and that's who the electeds cater to. And so I think that the, the idea of redistributing power, pushing power back out and making it easier for everyday working people to have, to organize, to be able to influence somebody who has power helps us to think about what could be possible and what could be different. So um, let's, uh, let's finish on this question uh, that Linda is bringing up and the, the spoiler question in general. So Linda says here, um, we have to fight for equal time provisions and open debates. It ranked choice voting destroys the lesser the lesser evil slander. That's its value. So let's um let's talk about that it, that comment and then use that as a bridge to talk about what you think about the spoiler and the lesser evil arguments in general. Well, I mean, I think that's I think that's what we would hope to get out of that. I'm not saying that there aren't 
valuable things that can be done with ranked choice. So I'm not saying um, don't do it. I just think that we have to recognize that that the 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 power structure itself, the duopoly, also sees an opportunity in that as well, right? I, I, I would, I'm not going to stand in the way of ranked choice happening if people organize for it. Uh, I think there's ways in which, again, if we looked at it and studied it, maybe it's something that can be used. But I also think that the truth is, is that whenever we really see outside candidates win, right, it's not because the ranked choice is the option, right? It's really because there's a lot of energy in their campaign. They have built a network to really to really communicate their ideas, right? And it's almost always part of a movement. And I just don't, I, I, like I said, I, I'm, I don't want to diminish the possibility that it could be helpful. I really want to stand up the fact that the real democracy that we're looking for is engaging people to make change, right? And that's what that's about when we see outside candidates be successful. Yep, and let me comment on that, and then we'll talk about spoilers for a second. So um, I, I think, like, look, I think that ranked choice voting is better for voters. At least most voters, it's a little bit better for the candidates aren't going to be as polarized. The There's more people who will participate, but it doesn't change outcomes. Uh, and I think that we need to be thinking about how we have different outcomes uh, for not just how we vote differently, but how we are putting parties into place that can enact different laws, enact different policy, and change the outcomes that are happening. Because uh, I think if we look at some of the examples of places where ranked choice has been implemented, both within the United States and around the world, it's not changing outcomes. It is changing um, a little bit more representation, but it's not helping third parties to win. It's not redistributing the power and making it so that there's more people who have minoritarian views and have movements around those minoritarian views to be able to influence uh, opportunity. And, and I guess that bridges well into this question about the lesser evil slander. Um, so we know that one of the main ways that the two parties defend themselves is by saying there is no alternative uh, and we need to vote for the lesser evil. And if you don't do that, you're just spoiling elections. What is your take on spoiling elections and the lesser evil slander? So, I mean, you, you know, there was a time when people who believed in slavery thought that the people who were enslaved could not live without them, right? That if you didn't have a choice between slavery then it must have been barbarism, right? That's the only choice. Slavery or barbarism was the only real two choices. I think the real struggle that we're engaged in is, first of all, people are showing us they're opting out. They're, they're increasingly more, right now in America, there are less people registered who are registered to vote as independents or third parties than there are people registered to be Democrats and Republicans. Right. And that is not slowing down. And that's not something that we control. That's something that the Democrats and Republicans have caused because people starting to see the show. Right. They understand it. Um, more and more people are opting to not vote at all. Right. So the truth is, is that what people really don't want to deal with, if there weren't outside candidates, whether that was running inside the Democratic Party as an outsider, running uh, uh, as an independent or a third party, there are people who would just stay home. They wouldn't even vote. So the whole spoiler thing just doesn't add up numbers wise when you're talking about what that population looks like. But I think the other thing is, is that the lesser two evil argument has to be understood because the truth is, is that is what people are being engaged to do. 
right? And if you don't be honest with people, then they think that, you know, people walk around with the buttons, I voted, right? Like I did my civic duty. Now let me go to sleep for another 364 years and not know anything about politics. That's not what we're advocating. We want people to say, listen, I've voted ever since I've been 20, since I've been 22, I have not voted for a Democrat or a Republican. And every year for the, uh, for the, uh, for the uh, presidential race, I write somebody in, right? Now, I've, people have told me, well, you wasted your vote. No, I voted for who the hell I wanted. And I did the most, I did the most democratic thing that anybody could do by voting my conscience, right? I didn't stay home. I didn't just, just, just leave it to somebody else. I voted for what I thought the right choice was, even if that person wasn't even running for president, right? So I'm telling you that we have to have people have a critical analysis that they're tired of the lesser of two evils and that there is no good choice, generally speaking, coming out of the duopoly, right? That we have to have a better system. Yep. And and I think the thing, last thing that I would add about that, and then I want to see if you have anything to promote or anything to talk about, is that the spoiler argument and the lesser evil argument has done good work for Democrats over the last several decades. It has suppressed the emergence of viable alternatives that could change these conditions. It has suppressed the ability for third and fourth and fifth parties to emerge, but it has not stopped the fascism of the far right. And so we are in this place where we have the worst of both worlds, where they have deployed an argument that is effectively suppressing the emergence. Uh, they've deployed propaganda that is successfully suppressing the emergence of the kind of alternatives that have brought us justice throughout our history. And they are not marshalling enough electoral force in order to stop the rights creeping fascism or the rights imminent fascism or whatever you want. And so we get an election like we have here where Joe Biden is running against Donald Trump and, you know, people who are reasonable people by some folks standards are saying, even if Joe Biden supports genocide, we still need to vote for him because the other guy is more genocidal. And if I, if I can't think, I can't think of anything that is more, um, you know, nail on the head description of a two-party system at this point in history than that, the, that, that says we should vote for him because even if we agree he supports genocide, he's less genocidal than the other person. If, there, if there's not a call to make something better and to make a new system that is, that is, if that's not the call to do that, I don't know what it is. I think you and I have both heard the call. I think you and I are both doing great work on this, and I really appreciate your time on this tonight, Namdi. What do you got coming up that people can know about and that they Not can the participate in? With the holiday season coming around, we're trying to just let people do what they do. I think it's really important, though, that we monitor what's happening in the struggle for the Palestinian people. Um, genocide is on the table. Uh, the Palestinian people have been they've been stripped of their humanity. When we when we are allowed to talk about the Palestinians, they all have to be Hamas. Right. And then Hamas has to be a terrorist organization, not not a liberation movement that's been suppressed. Right. But it's a terrorist organization. And so we can't even have conversations about the people themselves and what's happened to them. I really implore people to stay very connected to local actions, education. There um, there is work being done to pressure our uh, uh, congressmen uh, and senators around uh, um, supporting the cease fire uh, a call, but I also think there's whole questions around the one party, uh, excuse me, the one state solution that need to be advanced. There needs to be a democratic solution, 
right? Just like we're talking about democracy here, let democracy happen in, 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 in occupied Palestine so that all the people who live there get a chance to decide what everybody's fate is going to be. And then you won't need to have guns and use uh, 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 tactics that put anybody's life at stake. So that's what I'm putting a call out for. And we will be posting as much as we can uh, from the UPP sites uh, on Facebook and, and Instagram to let people know when those things are happening. Excellent. Thank you, Vinambi. This is great. I hope this is the first, uh, well, this is the second conversation we've had on this. I hope we can continue developing this idea because I think there's power in understanding that justice, which is something that many of us believe in, is impossible in this system. I think that it's easy for folks to say democracy is impossible in this system or representation is impossible in this system. But I think if you and I can develop this argument about the impossibility of justice in a two-party system and the possibility of actual justice justice and a different kind of system, I think we can really begin uh, to not just offer the critique, but to offer the alternative that allows people to see a new way to a new day. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fun. Uh, but we have a path in front of us, and I'm happy to be walking it with you. And I hope we can do more of these in the future. Right on. I look forward to it as well. Thank you very much. All Thank right. you all very much for, for joining in. Yep. And thank you to everybody who watched. Uh, and we'll have more of these coming soon. We'll probably have Namdi back. Um, next week, we have our December 1st, we have Dr. Bernard Tomas, who wrote a book about uh, the history of third parties in the United States. We're going to get into some uh, wonky data and statistics about third parties, their formation, their revival, their demise, all of that type of stuff. So take a keep an eye out for that. Um, and thank you so much, Namdi. Thank you to everybody else. And y'all have a good night. Good night.